Morning, PBC. So the reading of God's word today will be in John 4, verses 7 through 26. If you, uh, there should be a couple Bibles around you. If you don't have one, you can use those. John 4, verses 7 through 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you... A Jew asked for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it was that was saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. This, the water that I give him, will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now have is not your husband. What you have said is true, the woman said to him. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped upon this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Lord, I pray for uh, the service. I thank you, Lord, that you give us the ability to worship, that we can take whatever little uh, things that we have and, and that you've blessed us with and just give that back up to you, Lord, to delight in you, to worship, to give you praise and thanks, Lord. And uh, it's just so awesome to have a great worship team here uh, at Phoenix Bible Church to be able to come together in a corporate community and uh, communion, Lord, to be with you and, and to worship you, Lord. I pray that we would worship you uh, in spirit and in truth, as the word says. Um, I pray, Lord, for uh, this for Pastor Tim Smith, Lord, to you just use him and give him the words to speak and that we would all be um, just profoundly changed here and um, go forward with, you know, with great application into our week. Uh, we thank you for how you love us. So in your name, Jesus, I pray. Amen. Amen. You guys can take a seat. Well, good morning. My name is Tim. I'm the pastor here. And if you are new, I just want to welcome you. If I didn't meet you on the way in, I'd love to do so on the way out. And you picked a good Sunday to join us. We have a few things going on. Zach mentioned it earlier, but we get to celebrate baptisms. And the reason we love to celebrate baptisms is because when we do that, we're celebrating 
new life in Jesus. And so we get to do that with two people today. And so it's going to be amazing uh, a little bit later when we get to do that. Our kids, uh, if you saw on your way in, are celebrating the end of school with a big bash. And I know some of you are tempted to jump in the inflatable. Uh, but I'm glad that you uh, stayed away from that temptation and made it in here this morning because we have great things in store for you as we continue our devoted series talking about worship. And to do that, we have my friend Tim Smith here to speak to us and talk about worship. And there's a few things that you'll quickly realize about my friend Tim. And one is he has a great name. Uh, I think that goes without saying, but uh, I'll say it anyway. And he's a rather tall individual which you'll realize pretty quickly here in a moment. And the third thing, last but not least, you'll realize that he is from Portland. And you'll quickly realize that as, as well. Uh, Tim has been a worship leader for 17 years plus. He's planted a church in Portland. Uh, and we got to work together for about a year. And so I got to see Tim start a church, build a church, lead a church. But more importantly, I got to see Tim love his family and love his wife, Beth, who's here with us this morning, and his three little girls, uh, who are not little anymore, right? Uh, the princess posse, as they call them. And uh, it was a unique time for us in, in Portland. Some of you know our story just a little bit, but we were away from family. It was a unique uh, job situation for us, and they just took us in. I don't think there was a holiday where we weren't in their house eating dinner and enjoying good conversation with their family. And they would just give us stuff. Uh, their kids would just give our kids toys. And, and Beth would give my wife recipes. And, and I feel like we, we got to experience in an authentic way the, the foodie culture of Portland, thanks to these guys. And so they just took us in in so many ways and let us into their lives. Didn't have to do that, but they, they wanted to do that. And a lot of uh, who I am today and, and how we're leading this church is, is due to his influence in my life. And so I'm really glad that you get to hear from him today. As we started PBC, uh, Redeemer, the church he leads, called me just a few months in and said, Hey, Tim, we want to be a part of helping plant churches. And you and PBC were the first people we thought of. And so some of you guys don't even realize this, but they've come alongside me as your pastor, relationally in prayer and encouragement, but they've also come alongside us financially. And a big part of why we're here today as a church is churches like Redeemer and people like Tim who've come alongside us to see God's mission in Phoenix be lived out through Phoenix Bible Church. So, so glad they're here, so glad you get to hear from him. And would you give him a, a warm welcome from PBC as he comes up? Well, good morning and welcome. Uh, it's very good to be here. I am taller than the other Tim. Uh, one of my, my favorite moments uh, at our church in Portland is uh, we, we have various people uh, kind of close out our service, and uh, there is uh, one gal who helps lead part of our kind of prayer ministry and such, and her name is Bonnie. And I don't know exactly her height, but it is less than five feet. Uh, and every time she comes up, she'll usually be standing next to me as we close out the service, and she'll stand right here. It's like here. And as soon as she takes the stage, everyone starts to kind of snicker like. <laughs> so uh, Tim's taller than Bonnie Von Wald, but... Um, uh, but it, it's, it's really good to be here. It's, it's been really good to, to catch up and, and spend some time with Tim. 
and Jaya know that, that I and, and the uh, leadership of Redeemer Church pray for you often, and it's been uh, a privilege and a joy to, to play a, at least a small part in helping to support the church uh, as well here. And so uh, this is something that uh, Tim and I have talked about for a while. It's the opportunity to, to come down and visit, and I'm going to get to hang with some of the other uh, worship leaders later today, and just really looking forward to uh, all of that together. But uh, for our time here this morning, uh, as Tim said, we're going to continue uh, in this devoted series, specifically focusing on worship. Worship is a huge topic, a topic we could talk about for weeks. Uh, we could, I, I could preach on it for hours. I promise I won't uh, today, but uh, it's, it's a huge theme, one of the themes, I think, that, that you can trace through Scripture. There's, there's a number of uh, threads that you can run, really Genesis through Revelation, and if you don't know what that means, that's the first book of the Bible to the last book of the Bible, and everywhere in between. But I want to I wanna focus in this morning on one specific passage that I think has some profound things to teach us about worship. But as we do so, I want us to keep some questions in mind. Like, first of all, what is worship? Uh, is worship inherently uh, kind of wrapped up in the gathering together of folks and, and the singing of songs? Or is it something uh, more broad? Where does worship happen? Does it happen primarily in seemingly sacred spaces uh, as uh, folks gather together of one kind of spirituality or another uh, in, in gathered worship? Or, or, or is it something that happens more broadly? Does it always have to involve song or, or prayer? And, and how does it connect to life? How does it connect to the stuff of life as you're parents and folks working in an office or making coffee or, uh, or raising kids, wh whatever it is that you do. Let's keep some of these questions in mind. And as we do that, we're going to turn to John chapter 4. If you have an app or a Bible, uh, you can do that. You can follow along uh, on the slides behind me. And, and this, this story in John chapter 4, it tells the story of a conversation that Jesus had with a woman in the area that's called Samaria. And uh, it, it's, it's a huge conversation. Uh, it's a conversation that both focuses in very specifically on what's going on in the life of this particular woman, but it also is a story that has huge implications uh, even for us here today. So it's got big ideas and very, very personal application as well. But to understand it, you need to understand a little bit about uh, Samaria, particularly the relationship between Jesus, who was a Jew, uh, and uh, Samaritans in general. It's kind of a key to understanding how this whole conversation works. And I won't go into all the details, but the big idea is this. Jews wanted absolutely nothing to do with Samaria. Uh, it is, was a, a, at, this at the point of, of this conversation, this is a conflict and an animosity that had been building for the better part of a thousand years, honestly. Uh, it, it goes back to uh, uh, 700 uh, years before the birth of Jesus, where uh, the, the empire of Assyria had invaded uh, Israel, and they took a bunch of the Jews away and resettled them in other places, and some of the Jews stayed, and those Jews who stayed, they, they intermarried with the Assyrians, they took on their worship practices, and so the Jews came to see them as, as kind of compromisers, as kind of religious and 
ethnic half-breeds as they kind of diluted the nation of Israel. Over time, eventually, Samaria built their own temple, established their own rival priesthood uh, in in rivalry with the Jews. Uh, Their temple was in Jerusalem to the south. Samaria was in the north. Uh, Eventually, the Jews came and destroyed their temple. They've literally fought. They've killed one another. There's intense animosity, so much so that for a Jew to have any contact whatsoever with any Samaritan person made them, uh, in their view, unclean before God so that they had to go to a temple, see a priest, kill an animal, offer a sacrifice to be made right again with God just for having contact with a Samaritan. Uh, lots of Jews, uh, they, would, they would come from Jerusalem, which is kind of in the south, and Samaria was in the north. They would take a long way around so that they wouldn't even enter Samaritan space. Well, as the story goes in the Gospel of John, Jesus is down in the south in Jerusalem, uh, and he's headed north. And what does he do? He doesn't go around Samaria. He goes right up through the middle. Uh, and as the story goes, he sits down at this well, this ancient well that actually Jacob himself from the Old Testament had dug a, a long, long time ago. He's sitting down. It's about noon, which is the, the heat of the day in the desert, probably not unlike uh, the Phoenix sun. And he has this conversation. It, it starts... Uh, in verse 7. I'm not going to read all of the text again, but I'm going to kind of fast forward through the first half of this conversation to get to the worship part, but it's important that we understand some of what's going on. The conversation starts when this woman comes uh, from Samaria to draw water. Not only is she a Samaritan, which is an issue for Jews, she's a woman, Uh, and that was a big deal in those days too. Jewish men did not interact with women in public unless it was their wives, and even then sometimes not, Uh, and that was seen as, as scandalous, but despite the fact that she is a Samaritan and that she is a woman and they are alone because it says all the disciples had gone into town to get food. I don't know how many disciples it takes to get food, but apparently it's all of them. Uh, and, uh, and despite all these obstacles, uh, despite all this kind of social taboo, Jesus begins to engage her and he says, hey, I'm, I'm thirsty. Give me a drink. Uh, and the Samaritan woman uh, replies and almost kind of like, well, what are you what are you doing? She says, how can you even talk to me? Jews have, have no dealings with Samaritans. And this, this phrase in verse 9 that says no dealings, it can also be translated as, as Jews don't even use the same dishes as Samaritans. And that was true. It was, it was their custom. It, because it believed that it would make them dirty before God. So they would, if, if a Samaritan had touched a bowl, that bowl had to be washed and, and purified for them to even touch it again. And so she rightly says, she's like, look, I'm a woman, you're not supposed to talk to me. I'm a Samaritan, you're not supposed to talk to me. We don't even share dishes. How, how can you talk to me? And Jesus responds in a profound way, as he tends to do. He says, he says look, if you knew the gift of God, if you had any idea who it is that's talking to you, you would have initiated the conversation, not me. Says, says you would have, have asked him, and he would have given you living water. What does he mean by living water? He's, it's a metaphor that he's using, and it's a metaphor uh, kind of using that context. It's hot, it's dry, he's thirsty, and he's talking about a water that, that quenches that deep thirst, but he's talking metaphorically, not just physically, uh, a cool drink of water on a hot desert day. He's, he's talking about uh, a water that brings eternal life with God, that this relationship with God 
brings a, a kind of satisfaction that is even more deep and profound than the best glass of water uh, in the hottest day. That's what he's saying. The woman responds, says, says well, how are you going to do that? She just thinks he's talking about water. Uh, uh, she says, you got nothing to uh, draw the water with and the well is deep. Are, are you even greater than our father Jacob? She's referencing historically, Jacob, he, he had to get a bucket. He, he actually dug the well himself. Are you? She's using a familiar category. We often do this. It's like when, when God does something, we try to compare it to something uh, that is, is familiar to us when sometimes it's just truly extraordinary. She doesn't realize God in the flesh is speaking to her. And so she's just kind of comparing it to, to like, hey, are you like Jacob, the Old Testament hero that we still follow, even as Samaritans? Are you even greater than him? She's asking it like a rhetorical question. Obviously, he is. And Jesus says, responds, he says, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give him will never be thirsty again. He's talking about a, a relationship with God that satisfies. And, and what you're going to see here is this this whole conversation starts to take this turn. Jesus is consistently kind of bit by bit drawing her in closer and closer into conversation and closer and closer into relationship with him. And what you're going to see is she, like every one of us, is, is searching for something that truly satisfies. And in this metaphorical language, that, that satisfies like a drink of water on a hot, sunny desert day in the heat of the day, in the, in the hottest part of the day. And, and we're going to see, we're going to start to get a glimpse of, of what she's going to, to find satisfaction, to find value, to find worth, to find dignity in her life. And, and what Jesus is saying is, until you find that in me, you're always still going to be thirsty. That's the big idea. But she, like all of us, myself included, tend to look for lesser things, to look for things that satisfy in a more immediate and, and, and tangible way, but they ultimately fail. That's, that's what's going on here. So the woman, she still doesn't understand exactly what he's saying. This is often the case when people talk to Jesus. He uses image and, and metaphor, and people don't always understand initially what he's saying. She definitely doesn't. She still thinks they're just talking about water. So she's like, hey, give me this water so I won't have to be thirsty, so I won't have to be coming here again and again to draw water. There's a, there's a clue in this, too, that gives us a little bit of an insight into who she is. She's coming by herself in the heat of the day. The custom in that day was that women came in groups early in the morning when it was cool and late at night again when it was cool. There's something going on that has separated her from all the other women in her village that causes her to come alone in the heat of the day. There's a shame that's attached to that. And I think she's starting to say, hey, look, if you can give me some water that, that helps me not have to keep making this journey by myself to be reminded of how much of an outcast I am, even in my own village, hey, if you could give me something like that, that'd be great. I, I, I totally take that. She's still thinking about it in physical terms, and this is where it starts to really get interesting. Jesus kind of changes the subject on her, and he says this, okay, go call your husband and come here. And the woman says, I have no husband. 
Jesus says, yeah, you're, you're, you're quite right that when you say, I have no husband. Uh, the truth is, you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Where is this woman? Searching for satisfaction and meaning and value and worth in her life? seems like a pretty good indicator is this long string of relationships. She has been married five times, and now she's living with another guy who she's not even married to, Jesus, in his mercy. And he does this, and sometimes we get frustrated with him. But, but in his mercy, he cuts straight to her deepest source of, of sin and shame and unmet expectation so that he can show her what her deepest need is, a need that can only be met by relationship with God through him. That's what he's doing here. And, he, and Jesus knows until, until this is, is revealed, until this, this pattern is revealed and acknowledged in her life, as, as something that she is doing actively to replace what only God can provide, she's never going to find satisfaction. She will always, to use his metaphor, she will always be thirsty in one way or another. Well, she responds in verse 19. Obviously, she's shocked. She says, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. I think in the Greek that's pronounced, don't, like, like, like she's just talking about, uh, she, she thinks they're talking about like something mysterious called living water. Mostly they're just talking about water at a well. All of a sudden Jesus busts out with her whole relational sexual bedroom history. She's like, well I, 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 well, I can see you are a prophet. And what does she do? Notice what she does. She tries to, to change the subject again uh, to uh, something that is a little more comfortable. And here's what she does. Verse 20, she says, well... You're a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, and where they're standing is a place called Mount Gerizim, and that was the location where the Samaritans built their temple. Uh, so uh, it, it had been destroyed, but it was still a holy place uh, to, uh, for Samaritan worship. So it says, uh, our fathers worshiped on this mountain at the Samaritan temple, uh, but you and the Jews say that you should worship in Jerusalem at the Jerusalem temple. Uh, and, and, and what do you have to say about all this? Here's what she does. What does she do when she is confronted with her whole kind of relationship history? She changes the subject like a good church kid to matters of worship, right? She, it, this could be, in our day, it, it could be something uh, smaller, kind of like, 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 like you're, maybe you're talking with somebody and they're like, oh, yeah, I, I know you've had 17 boyfriends in the last three months. And, and the response would be, well, what do you think? Hillsong versus uh, maybe other bands. So what do you think? Like, like writing original songs for gathered worship? Or, or should we really sing old hymns? Should we just stick with those? Uh, should we have kind of a, a free, open form and just kind of go with the flow and be more spontaneous in our services? Or should we have more of a, a liturgy? Should we worship on Sunday morning? or Sunday evening, maybe even Saturday evening. What, what do you think, Jesus? It could be like that. That's what she's doing. It's a classic dodge. It's always easier to talk worship, to talk 
theology, to talk some kind of big idea than it is to actually get personal about what's going on deep in, in your heart, and particularly sin in your heart. Well, Jesus' response, how he responds to this is profound. It's profound both for this woman and it is profound for us as well. It tells us a lot. It's not the only place in the Bible that talks about worship. Like I said earlier, there's a lot of things that the Bible has to say about worship. But this is a very dense area where where we can learn a lot about uh, worship biblically uh, from what Jesus says next. Here's the first thing he says, verse 21. Jesus says to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming. Uh, And when he's talking about the hour, particularly in the Gospel of John, he's talking about his arrival. Uh, He's talking about his death. He's talking about his resurrection. He says, says, look, the hour is coming uh, when neither on this mountain, neither Mount Gerizim for the Samaritan worship, nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. Now, I know that there's cultural barriers, there's historical barriers. We don't instantly understand the difference between Mount Gerizim and, and, and the Jerusalem temple, but given what I've said, I think you can start to grasp a bit of the significance of this statement. This is a huge statement. With a word, Jesus fundamentally changes the entire biblical understanding of worship, never to be the same again. He undoes the whole history of what God's people had understood about worship. Because until that place, thus far, until this point, thus far, uh, worship in Scripture has been primarily something that is talked about in a particular time and place. Started off in uh, a tabernacle, a big mobile tent of meeting where the presence of God dwelled. Then it ended up in a temple. It was done through sacrifices. It was done through priests and and rituals and, and high like festival days and all kinds of stuff in the Old Testament. Now what Jesus is saying is like, look, it's not gonna be either one. It's not just the Samaritan temple that has it wrong. It's actually the Jewish temple that has it wrong too. It's not gonna be either place. And ultimately what he's saying is, in answer to the question, hey, which holy place will we worship? He's saying, neither of them. I will become your holy place. Jesus will become their temple. Jesus will become their sacrifice. Jesus will become their priest. Now worship will be in and through him rather than at a specific time or a specific place. We'll talk about the implications more in a minute. He goes on, verse 22. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. He's just speaking to the reality here. Look, you Samaritans, you guys rejected. They, they rejected almost all of the Old Testament. They only kept the first five books and then they kind of added on to it in their own version of the scripture. He's like, look, you don't even know what you're talking about when you talk about worship. Uh, you've turned your back on God. Uh, and, and, uh, and, and ultimately, when he's saying salvation comes from the Jews, he's saying, I'm a Jew, and salvation is coming through me. That's really what he's saying. He's saying, thus far, uh, you worship what you don't know, but, verse 23, it's a big but. Oftentimes, they are with Jesus. He's saying, but, that, that's the way it was, but now the hour is coming, and it is here. With, with the arrival of Jesus, Jesus is saying, with my arrival... Everything's going to be different. 
It's not gonna be in either one of these temples, it's gonna be through me. The, the, the privilege of the race of Israel as only God's people, it's dissolving. No, it's not gonna be any longer about, about just being born in the right nation. He says, the hour is coming, is now here, when true worshipers, so he said, it's not just gonna be time and place, now true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. It's no longer a privileged race of people. It's no longer a privileged gender. Women weren't allowed in all kinds of aspects of Old Testament or Samaritan worship. He says it's no longer gonna be a kind of, kind of special holy places that are set apart. Now it's gonna be in these huge overarching categories of spirit and truth. He says, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. He's saying, look, all, all you guys think that it's you that's seeking God. Actually, worship begins with, with God, the Heavenly Father, as he's searching you. The only problem with the, the kind of the seeker movement in the church is, uh, according to Paul, there aren't any seekers. Ultimately, ultimately, God is the one who's the seeker, not us. Uh, anytime, if you're here and you're kind of like, investigating the claims of Jesus, wanting to learn more about who he is and what it would mean to follow him, just, just your very interest actually comes from God. You wouldn't have that desire unless God the Father was already working in your heart, unless God the Holy Spirit was already starting to, to convict you that there is something missing that you want to learn more about, that uh, uh, no one can even acknowledge that Jesus is God unless the Holy Spirit first inclines their heart to do so. So worship begins with the Father. It's not all about these holy places and special times. It's the Father seeking after folks. He goes on to say in verse 24, God is spirit. He's not a physical being. That's part of why he can't be confined to a particular time and place, either Mount Gerizim or, or Jerusalem or any other church building. He says, uh, and those who worship him must worship. Because he's spirit, they must worship in spirit and in truth. Uh, what he means by spirit, especially in light of, of what he just said at the beginning part of verse 24 is, I think he's saying, look, worship is a spiritual thing. It, is, it happens in the, the, the physical realm just as, sorry, the spiritual realm, just as God is spirit. Ultimately, uh, it's through the Holy Spirit, but I don't think that's what he has in mind specifically here. He's saying, look, Worship that, that glorifies God is going to be spiritual. It's not, uh, not just done at a particular time and place. It's going to be in truth as well. It's going to be, uh, what he means by truth is, is it, according to the way God has revealed himself in and through the scriptures and ultimately how he reveals himself in and through Jesus. We'll talk more about what spirit and truth mean for us here today in just a minute. It's not clear how much the woman understands of all this. These are our big, huge things being revealed by Jesus. Uh, I, I know that she didn't get it from her response. I, I, don't, I don't think even we get it. I've been studying this passage on and off for, for the better part of, of 20 years, and every time I come back to it, I, I learn new things. Uh, I hear new things in the midst of it. So she doesn't fully grasp it. And she responds. She responds with another familiar category from her understanding of the scriptures, which kind of ends the, the conversation here in this last bit. She, she, and this time she's closer to the truth. She says, I know. Well, look, 
I don't know exactly what all this means, but I do know the Messiah is coming, who's called the Christ, the anointed one, the, the deliverer that would come from God. And when he comes, he will explain all this to us. He will tell us all things. And Jesus says to her, I who speak to you am he. She thought they were talking about water and relationships and worship. Instead, what she realizes is she actually found the Messiah. Everything changes from her from this point. She leaves this conversation. She believes in Jesus. She spreads uh, her, uh, the, the message of what Jesus has done in and through and, and around her through this conversation in this village. People uh, believe in Jesus. They, they initially believe in him because of her testimony. They end up coming to him uh, personally. They hear more from him. It's beautiful how the story concludes. It's, it's an amazing story, both for its, its huge, big ideas, which have all kinds of implications for us. It's a beautiful story, both also for its very intensely personal nature as well. And so I want to, as we kind of wrap this up and consider this, what this means for us, I want to spend some time in both of those camps. I want to talk first about some, some big ideas that we can draw from this, and then secondly, I want to talk about uh, personally what difference this might actually make in our lives. So uh, I want to just give a, a, a series of points that some of the questions that we asked uh, at the beginning, I want to give you some of the answers in light of what we've seen from John chapter 4. The first question is this. The big, the big, big question is, what is worship? Now, to answer that question, whenever you're asking a, a question that kind of requires a, a definition of that, uh, you can do some word studies in your, in your Bible. You can see if there is a, a definitive verse that kind of explains and kind of encapsulates an idea. But if it doesn't, uh, and there's a lot of things uh, that Scripture does not give that kind of a definition. Like, for example, the Trinity, the, the, the word doesn't even occur in the Scripture, and yet we, we can piece together uh, a, a very vivid picture of the eternal God existing uh, as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so uh, we, we're left, when, when Scripture doesn't give us a specific definition, to kind of do our best, to put our, our best words together, uh, knowing that it's not equal in authority to Scripture, but it's our, our best guess. And this is my favorite one from a, a book by uh, a guy named Harold M. Best called Unceasing Worship. Here's how he defines worship. He says, worship is the continuous outpouring of all that I am, all that I do, and all that I can ever become in light of of a chosen or choosing God. I could have just taught this whole kind of sermon here just on that definition, but I won't. Um, but here's the big idea. I, I love this phrase, continuous outpouring. Uh, and we see some of that here. Uh, I'll, I'll step out just of John 4 uh, for a minute. But uh, in John, later in the Gospel of John, John chapter 17, uh, which is this beautiful prayer that Jesus prays right before he's betrayed, uh, he begins towards the beginning of this prayer in John chapter 17. He says, he says, Father, glorify me with the glory we had before the world began. We get this picture from that and elsewhere in Scripture that that 
the eternal God existed as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit before the foundation of the world, and one of the attributes that characterized their relationship was, was glory, this, this splendor and majesty and brightness, and they shared it together. They, and in that, we get a, a sense of, uh, of worship as a continuous outpouring within the Trinity itself. The Father pouring himself out to the Son, the Son pouring himself out to the Father, the Spirit pouring himself out to the, the Father and, and the Son. The Scripture tells the story that, that we are actually created, all humanity is created in his image, and so we, uh, being created in his image, to show some of what he's like, we end up also being people who continuously pour themselves out in one way or another, for better or for worse, for God-glorifying worship, or what the Bible talks about as self or creation-glorifying idolatry. And so when we come to this idea of worship, what we see here, when Jesus starts to talk about things like, like spirit and truth, we're talking about huge overarching categories that encompass all of life. Uh, the, the Samaritan woman in this story, she's like, hey, hey, look, you're getting too personal here. I don't want to talk about all my, my husbands. Let's talk about worship. Jesus' response to her is, sorry, you misunderstood this. We already were. We were talking about worship. Worship has just as much to do with the string of husbands in the Samaritan's woman, Samaritan woman's life uh, as it does where she would worship, which temple she would go to. Everyone worships. We are born, we are created, every human being with the worship switch stuck in the on position. We can't turn it off. We're constantly pouring ourselves out in one way or another towards one thing or another. The question is, what are you worshiping? What do you pour yourself out towards? This can take either the form of, of God-glorifying worship or idolatry, which is a, a false kind of worship. Let's look at each of those. Uh, God-glorifying worship, we learn here, we could talk a lot about this, but working from, from John chapter 4 here, the key attributes are spirit and in truth. Worship that glorifies God is worship that comes in spirit and in truth. When he's saying spirit, he's saying the object of the worship needs to be spiritual as opposed to not simply physical because God is spirit. Uh, Paul says in, in Romans uh, chapter 1 that, that part of the essence of sin is the exchange of worshiping created things rather than the creator. And that's what we're talking about here. We're saying, we're saying uh, uh, to worship in spirit is not to worship created things as an end in themselves. It's to worship the creator who has created everything that we know. So worship that glorifies God is spiritual. It's also in truth, meaning, meaning it is worshiping the God revealed by his holy scriptures, ultimately revealed, by his only son, Jesus, and uh, in the words of the first of the Ten Commandments, that we would have no other gods before him. So the essence of God-glorifying worship 
is worship that is offered spiritually, not worshiping and serving created things. And it is not just all spiritual worship being good, but worship of the one true God. God the Heavenly Father, Creator, His only Son, Jesus, and God the Holy Spirit who indwells everyone who puts their faith and trust in Jesus and enters into relationship with God. So, uh, like, this, like, like the Samaritan woman, this is a, a, a huge, just like we saw with her, it's a huge overarching category of worship. It has as much to do with, with sexuality and relationships as it does about singing songs. And you have to see that in contrast to false worship. False worship, idolatry, uh, is the word that, that Scripture uses. And that always conjures up an image of like bowing down to a statue, right? And so we can easily be like, you know, I haven't done that recently, so I think I'm probably cool, right? Um, but but idolatry is much more broad in Scripture. And it's really working from this passage. It's really a violation of spirit and truth in these terms. Spirit idolatry is worshiping creature rather than creator. Or, or that, that's uh, how it says it in the English Standard Version, the ESV, which I'm working from in Romans chapter 1. Uh, the NIV says, worshiping and serving created things rather than creator. Uh, and truth idolatry is uh, any spiritual worship outside of worship of the one true God as revealed through the scriptures, ultimately revealed through and in Jesus. So in the Samaritan woman's life, she was worshiping in a way that did not glorify God. She was violating spirit and truth. Uh, how was she violating spirit? She was pouring herself out looking for dignity, value, worth, and a sense of identity from this long string of men. Are relationships bad? No. But uh, there's a, a pastor in, in New York City, uh, Tim Keller, who uh, has written a, a wonderful book on idolatry called Counterfeit Gods uh, that just came to mind. I would recommend it to anyone. And, and, and I love his words. He says, he says, idolatry is when a good thing becomes a God thing. Relationships, good. But, but no woman was ever meant to find their deepest sense of value in a man or any other relationship. No, no man was meant to find their deepest sense of value in, in a woman or any other relationship. Uh, when a good thing becomes a God thing, it becomes an idol and everything gets twisted and distorted because a relationship was never meant to be able to provide the deep satisfaction that only comes from relationship with God. That's, so, so the Samaritan woman uh, was a, an idolater in her uh, lack of spiritual worship in the way that Jesus commanded and, and commended to her. Uh, she also violated truth. She was looking for, for a man to provide what only could come from her creator. Worship, when we come here, we, we always have to have these terms. It's so much bigger, so much bigger than we tend to speak of it most commonly in the church. And you can't just say worship, at least biblically. Biblically, the word worship, this is why it's confusing. The word worship is used in scripture to talk about both something that glorifies God as well as idolatry. And so uh, the, it raises the question, what's, what's the difference how do we tell the difference? We'll talk about that in a minute. I want to give you one more point. Worship, in light of all this, 
Before we get a little bit more personal with this, worship in light of all this, it's, it's both gathered and scattered. This is words that that I and, and others have been using for uh, a while in, in a church that we worked in together. Uh, I, I think these words do a good job at, at, at showing the difference. Gathered worship is what we're doing now. We gather together uh, for, uh, to, to open the scripture together, to sing, to pray, to respond to God together in giving, in taking communion, uh, people being baptized as they will today, worshiping together. This is, is gathered worship. It happens in all kinds of, of local gatherings of God's people, the church. Uh, but then we leave this place also worshiping, and we can call that scattered worship. And, and we, we scatter to do the same thing. We scatter with the word of God and the stuff of life. We scatter uh, uh, worshiping God in, in prayer. We, we, we shift, instead of doing it here together with this local kind of congregation of uh, this local outpost of the family of God, uh, we, we scatter throughout the area uh, in our work, in our family, in our relationships, in our community. But that's worship as well. We don't, and this is key, we don't begin our worship when we walk through the door of a seemingly sacred space, and we don't end our worship together when we leave that door as well. We come worshiping, then we continue our worship together, and then we scatter, continuing our worship out in the stuff of life. Gathered and, and scattered worship are both important. If, if all you have is scattered worship, uh, then we're, we're really missing out on something that God has intended for us. Scripture says that we're supposed to get together as followers of Jesus on a regular basis. Uh, and, and ultimately, I think that it, it kind of violates the image of God in, in whom we were created because God is a community within himself. We're not meant to just be individual worshipers. When we... When we come into a relationship with God, he, we're, we're reconciled to God through what Jesus did for us, but we're also reconciled not just into a personal relationship, we're reconciled into his family. So scattered worship alone, uh, uh, it, it gets one thing right in all of life is worship, but we're supposed to gather together as well. But gathered worship, which is much more common, gathered worship to the priority over or the exclusion of scattered worship ends up creating just a big religious show. And for those of you who have been around the church uh, for a while, the longer you've been around the church, the more you can be prone to this. It's that worship happens, just, and, and this is the natural understanding of a lot of people. The Samaritan woman very much illustrates this for us. It's the understanding that, that worship is something that is done at particular times and places and with special words and, and special songs, and now I go do the rest of my life, and this is my kind of compartmentalized spiritual stuff, and, and, and I, I, you know, I, I, I checked that box off uh, today, and it's an important part of my overall life diet, right? Uh, but then I kind of go from here and go back into the other stuff until I can kind of go recharge my battery again next week. I think I think gathered worship is supposed to encourage us, is supposed to uh, give us energy in that sense spiritually, but, but not to the exclusion of all of life being lived for the glory of God. Those are some of the big ideas I want 
uh, that I think um, at least would be my hope and prayer that would uh, become part of a, an ongoing conversation for Phoenix Bible Church. Uh, at, because this is not, these are not issues to kind of just solve one Sunday. Uh, uh, the question of, of what is worship supposed to look like for us is a question we ask over and over again. These are some big ideas to guide us, but if we just leave it on uh, the level of the big ideas, then uh, we're kind of doing something very similar to the Samaritan woman when she tries to change the subject and, and kind of dodge uh, what it really means for her life. And so I want to talk about those big ideas theologically. I also want to make it personal. And, and here's, here's where this really hits me and where this has had a, a significant impact on my life. I've been a worship leader in one way or another uh, for a long time. Uh, you know, Tim uh, said 17 years, that, that's a bit more kind of the professional end of it. But when I was thinking about it, as I was preparing uh, this message, it's really been a lot longer than that. I, I started playing guitar when I borrowed my youth leader's uh, acoustic and learned all three chords that we needed to play all the songs that we sang. Uh, and it's cool that way, right? Guitar players, uh, G, C, and D, three chords for the Lord. And... Um, uh, and which, you know, I'm 41, so that would have been mid-teens. So it's, it's been a long time. It's been 20, 25 years. Uh, and, and, and I started uh, leading worship through song in youth group and kind of graduated to living rooms with 20-somethings, ended up becoming a worship pastor, uh, being involved in, in training worship leaders and, and building bands. At the, the high point, I ended up leading worship once at the Seattle Seahawks uh, football stadium for almost 20,000 people. So everywhere between three chords for the Lord and the Seahawks stadium, uh, I, I've had some experience leading people in worship through song. From an early age, singing songs to God in worship gatherings grabbed my heart and and moved me in a way that I hadn't experienced really in any other way. And, and, and there's been something very good about that. But what I've also seen in that time is that as a worship leader, it is potentially the very easiest place to horribly distort the nature of what worship actually is according to Scripture. Here's what, here's what it can look like. It, it, worship leaders, church musicians, those kind of folks will probably identify with me in a very specific way. But everybody can identify this in one way or another if you've been around the church for any length of time. When you, when you focus on, on gathered worship, it can often come at the expense of more scattered worship. It can kind of fall by the wayside. And, and particularly for me, as I did this uh, as a, a vocation for a long time now, uh, most of my life, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm becoming more of a, a teacher now uh, in the last year, year and a half, but I still lead worship at times uh, at our church in Portland, and um, um, I, I've been doing this for a long time, but, um, but everyone can identify with, with this on some level. Uh, you, you, you start to prioritize what you do externally over what's actually going on internally. And for me, when, when how my performance was judged, and rightly so on some levels, as a, as a worship pastor, when it's judged on how well the event goes, it's super easy 
to start to kind of get this belief like, like, oh, well, you know, the worship gathering went well, so everything's good, right? Like, worship's good, so I'm good. Worship's good, so my family's good, right? Like, when in fact, those things don't always necessarily go together. And the more worship leaders you've known, the more you'd know that. <laughs> because worship leaders are really great, and this is just something that happens with all kinds of Christians. Any Christian can learn how to do this, but worship leaders have a specific way of, of kind of going about this where we can really, we know the right things to say. We can, we can kind of win over a room. You can learn skills to kind of present a, a spiritually mature front when inside your heart may be very far from God. And that's how it was with me uh, for, for many years. I mean, it was, it was very much like the Samaritan woman. I, I was leading worship all the time and, and was seen as a spiritual person by lots of folks. But there was all kinds of, of deep sin, sexual sin, all kinds of sin going on in my heart, which was very far from God. This is why the main emphasis in this message is not about how to sing songs better as you gather together. It's more about the heart of a worshiper. And here's the truth. Here's the the really difficult, murky, nebulous truth that's kind of frustrating at times. The only thing that separates God-glorifying worship from self and creation-glorifying idolatry is the heart. It actually has very little to do with what's going on externally. Case in point, someone could stand up here, I'm not wanting to impugn the character of any of the lovely trio that were leading us uh, here this morning. But uh, someone can stand up and sing words that they don't necessarily mean. They can sing words and you can even be moved to worship God and that all could happen by someone who didn't actually even believe in Jesus. I've definitely seen it happen. I've been moved by people uh, to worship my creator by folks that didn't believe in him. And so, uh, in the midst of this, um, you, it, it's not nearly as much about how things look externally as much as what's going on in our hearts. And the question of what we are pouring ourselves out towards in worship, it's not a question that you just answer once for all. It's not a question that you just answer when you get saved. It's a question that you have to answer every day, every hour, sometimes minute by minute. It's a question that, that should be a, a consistent dominating theme in the life of everyone who would follow Jesus, who would be in, in a relationship with God through what Jesus has done. And even as Christians, this temptation to pour ourselves out in worship towards lesser gods, it never stops. John Calvin, the great Reformation theologian, says the heart is an idol factory. I kind of picture it as a giant lazy Susan. Um, if you know what that is, that's the big circular thing at some Chinese restaurants where you kind of can just kind of keep it spinning and keep the, you, you, you order as many different kinds of interesting food. This is what I do at least. A bunch of different kinds of food. This is where we're getting into the foodie thing. You see, it would come out sometime. It was bound to. Um, but, uh, and you can just kind of spin it so you don't have to reach over everybody. You can kind of spin it to get your orange chicken and then you get your, you know, mushu or whatever. Um, and and, and that, that's how I picture my heart. It's kind of like, it's not any one temptation. 
It's all kinds of temptations. At any given moment, I will pour myself out to all kinds of lesser gods and then kind of just keep it spinning for variety, right? This is the case with all of us. And for me, I would say, looking back, I think one of the most common things that I have poured myself out towards that is a violation of spirit and truth is simply church success. For me, it was all about growing a church, growing more bands, growing a movement, seeing more people come. And there's nothing wrong with churches growing. I think churches should grow. But it's super dangerous because on the surface, it appears to be something that is God-glorifying worship, but it is so easy and so subtle for it to become more about created things than the creator. And, and success, I have learned numerically, is a very, very poor substitute for relationship with God. I thought I knew what I, I wanted. I didn't even realize the extent to which I was just simply giving everything I had to grow a church movement until the movement literally crumbled before me and totally fell apart. And honestly, uh, in this, uh, that happened you know, a year and a half ago or so. Uh, now I'm a part of this, this new life of a church with some similar people, but it's, it's going in a kind of a new way in Portland. Uh, and, um, and I'm in a different role. And honestly, it's really confusing because I thought I knew what it was about. Like, like God's mission for me was just to grow stuff, grow bands, grow churches, grow people, whatever. Now, I honestly am not sure what it's really about. I'm kind of confused. I don't really know. I don't really know exactly what it looks like. And as such, I'm learning in a new way how to simply be satisfied with my relationship with God rather than have to have some kind of external validation of being right with him. Because that's how it was for me. If the church wasn't this way or that way or this size or whatever measure of success, I would start to wonder where things were. I would feel like things were not right. It was a very poor substitute. It was a violation of of worshiping, as Jesus has said, in, in spirit and in truth. It put me very much on the same page with the Samaritan woman. And as we close, I just, I want to, I want us all to question what this looks like in our lives. Where is your heart most prone to idolatry? What created things are you constantly trending to pour yourself out towards instead of the creator? What lesser gods are you drawn towards than the God of the scripture, ultimately Jesus. Uh, 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 Let me ask it this way. This was the best question I could come up with uh, as I was thinking about it. If Jesus were to have a conversation with you sitting by a well just like the Samaritan woman, what would he call out in your life as your greatest object of false worship? For her, it was this string of marriages and shacking up with another dude who she's not married to. What would it be for you? 
Would it be something similar? Would it be a particular relationship, something you're looking for from a relationship that you can only get from God? Would it be uh, some measure of success, like what I was talking about, the success of your business, the success of your startup, whatever whatever it is that you would look for success in? Uh, parents, would it be uh, the uh, certain external ways that your kids would look, that your, your kids would turn out? Does your hope kind of fluctuate? Does your whole kind of demeanor and feeling of, of value before God ride and kind of like rise and, and fall on any of these things? On how a relationship goes, on how your kids behave, on how your business is going? If so, that's a, a sure indicator that you are putting hope, that you are pouring yourself out towards something that you were never meant to. Because God created us in such a way as to only find satisfaction as a human being in relationship with him. So what does that look like? What does that need to look like for you right now as we've looked at this Samaritan woman, as we've talked about some ideas of worship, as we just make it very personal, what does it look like for you to worship God right now? And I'm not talking about how we're going to stand in a couple minutes and start singing. We're all free to do that, but I'm saying as you leave this place, what does it look like for you to seek God's glory, for you to turn from lesser saviors and worship the one true God of the universe? And as we consider that, I want us just to take a moment and and be quiet. I'm going to ask the, the band to uh, come up here, and and I've asked them to just play a little bit, uh, just to give us a little bit of, of quiet space that we might have a moment to, to consider this. I don't want us, you know, I'm, I'm the worship leader, but I don't want you, I don't want you to just rush instantly into singing songs in a way that you usually would. I, uh, God is not honored simply by, by words and melodies. God is honored by worshipful hearts that, that, that pour themselves out towards him to the exclusion of other gods. Knowing all the other idols of success and body image and financial prosperity and relational fulfillment and sexuality, knowing all the other things that you could pour yourself out towards, worship that honors God is, is letting those things fade in your life and turning your heart towards him to say, you are, as Jesus said, more deeply satisfying, like uh, the, the perfect glass of water on a hot desert day, than anything that those other things have to offer me. Doesn't mean that you have to stop working out or sell your kids or get a divorce. Um, it just means that those good things need to put, be put back in their place. They're gifts of God. Don't turn a gift into a God. I think that's what God might have for us some today. They're gonna pray for a minute. I'm gonna close in prayer. And the good news, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is Jesus came to idolaters. Idolaters who should have recognized him as God, but who failed to at every opportunity. And despite their rejection of him, he died. He died 
for their very idolatry. In idolatry, they nailed him to a cross because they wanted a different God. They wanted a revolutionary Christ to restore them to political power and glory. And Jesus wasn't that. And so ultimately they turned on him. And Jesus said on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. That's the good news of the gospel. The good news of Jesus is, while we were still pouring ourselves out to lesser gods and false saviors, he died for us. And our response is to simply say, I've been looking in all the wrong places. I need you. I worship you. I praise you that you've been patient with me in this way. Let's pray and we'll respond together. Father, we just thank you for this time. And even though I've gone a little long for Phoenix Bible standards, uh, I just ask that you would, um, you would just work in hearts. Help us all to hear your voice, to hear your word, and just ask now through your spirit that you would convict us, convict us of all the ways that we drift towards other gods, that we believe relationships, success, finances, body images, kids, whatever, will satisfy us. Just ask that you would convict us of those things, that you would draw us to a place where we would confess them to you as, as empty, at least as God's. And that you would change our hearts so that we would know you more deeply and experience you more profoundly. That when we raise our voices in song together, it would be from a heart that has deeply considered all the other alternatives to you and said no in favor of worshiping you as the one true satisfying God of the world. Work in our hearts now. Amen.